episode of the Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca topic of nudist films or naturist films. Um, it's a topic that's really, I always find fascinating. I really enjoy watching some of these old movies. Um, they really give us an insight into naturism. It's, you see that it hasn't changed, but you see how society uh, looked at it differently at the time, how through the movies you see how people are uh, dealing with a topic, handling the issue, um, how it relates to the uh, the way that people were at that time, um, the difficulties, frankly, that many of them had. Of course, most of these movies are exploitive. Um, they are done by non-naturists because, especially in the 30s, 40s, 50s, the only way you could show nudity was by creating these pseudo-documentary-style movies. So it was under the guise of being educational. And uh, so several of these movies are created, but the naturists often seem to participate and support uh, the films because they felt it was the only way they could get their message out. They didn't have the budgets to create their own films, with a few exceptions. And in some cases, it's just a lot of fun to watch them. They're so uh, tacky. They, they're so wrong about the message. As long as we look at them with the idea that they are not done by naturists, they don't truly represent naturism, they're not a good introduction to naturism, many of these films are really entertaining, really funny, and uh, really just cool to kind of look at and watch and, and participate in, especially when you know the truth about naturism. So let's listen to just a little clip here of the introduction to one of the movies. Remember that many of these had to sound like they were documentaries. Otherwise, they wouldn't be approved by the various censor boards, particularly in the United States. So listen to this clip. Ever since the beginning of time, there has been a curiosity about the mysteries of the sun and the human body. Today, as always, there are places where one can take off the clothes of hypocrisy and part the curtain of shame and guilt. In Canada's Sun Valley Gardens, for instance, there is a nature park where people like Carol, the girl you see here, come to get away from the responsibilities and tensions of our ordinary life. The people on the blanket enjoying the sun are Carl, his wife Marlies, and their two children. Carl is the director of Sun Valley Gardens. He believes that all men are brothers in the new, that clothes make strangers of our fellow men, that clothing is a weapon to make one person seem more important than another. This girl and two of her friends will become the main characters in our story. You see her here, simple and unaffected, in a field of clover. Looking at her, there's no way of knowing that her father is a very wealthy businessman. Watching Carol without her clothes and jewelry, you could not guess her background. But since her mother's death, she has lived a comfortable life, but heavily disciplined by her father. He has given her all the luxuries and comfort that money can buy. 
But Carol has had to find the simple, happy times by herself. Here in Sun Valley Gardens, Carol has found a retreat that her father does not know about. She could never tell him. He would never understand. How do you tell a man whose life has been based on business and the razzle-dazzle of our commercial world that people are born to be free and that freedom can be found without fuss and bother in the arms of nature? This is Susan, the second of our three girls in our story. Born in Australia and having traveled extensively in Europe, Susan was no stranger to nudism. On her own for many years and learning to look after herself in a responsible way, Susan found in nudism a pleasant escape from the problems of a materialistic world. It was she, in fact, who had first brought Carol to Sun Valley Gardens. They had become friends a few years back when Susan managed an office for Carol's father. Here, the girls used to come and relax on the weekends. Here, they could make friends without fear of people who tried to advance themselves socially or economically. Isn't that great? I mean, you can almost, you can't see the pictures, of course, but just from the description, you can already see how um, the movie is really about women and showing women's bodies, and it's about, you know, exploiting naturism. Um, in this case, uh, Sun Valley Gardens is a real place. Um, uh, Carl Rule ran and built and ran Sun Valley Gardens, but the women that are shown in the movie, of course, are all young and attractive. And they do a lot of uh, prancing around, as you can imagine from the music in the description. Um, it, it is a way to get the message out, but um, the question is, did it do more harm than good uh, for naturism? Um, was it really something that people should have been participating in a naturist movement? So the real expert in this area is actually Mark Story. He actually literally wrote the book on the topic. His book is called Cinema au Naturel, A History of Nudist Film. And I understand the book is actually out of print, uh, but it's a fascinating book that covers the entire history of nudist films or exploitation films in many cases. And uh, Mark Story is actually very qualified for this. Mark Story is on the editorial staff of N Magazine, which is the quarterly journal of the Nature Society. He's uh, also the editor of Theatre au Naturel, a collection of naturist play, co-author of the world's best nude beaches and resorts. Uh, he serves on the board of the Naturist Action Committee and the Naturist Education Foundation. And he's an instructor for and chair of Bellevue College's philosophy department in Bellevue, Washington. So... He's very, very qualified. He's really uh, one of the key thinkers and leaders in the naturist world. So I called him and uh, asked him a few questions. So, Mark, how did you come to write a book on naturist films or nudist films, and uh, where did you get all the material? Well, it was an author from a journal down in Los Angeles. Uh, he's writing an article for Film Quarterly. It comes out of the University of California, Berkeley. It's the uh, United States' main film journal. And he was doing a uh, psycho psychoanalytic uh, review of uh, a film, an old film called The Unashamed. And he contacted TNS, Nature Society, and just wanted to make sure he got his nature's nudist history right. And they sent him to me because they knew I was interested in the history of it. And we got to talk into this fellow named Payne. And it's fascinating. And he said, you know, there's, there's a bunch of nudist old films out there. And I said, really? I hadn't heard of these things. And he said, yeah, there's actually dozens, probably hundreds of these things. I thought, I didn't want to write a story for this for, for N Magazine. And got to writing uh, about it, and it got there's more and more information. 
got to the point where the magazine said, hey, this is just too big, we can't do it. So I thought, well, it wouldn't take a whole lot more research. Maybe an extra year or two, it just turned into a book. And after about three years of uh, finding every single old nudist film I could that's presently on video, uh, going through all the books I could find on nudist films, uh, ended up with uh, what ended up being the first book on actual nudist films. All the other books tended to be Books on really trashy films or porn films, and always had like one chapter on nudist films. But no one really seemed to understand what nudists were about, who also understood what film history was about. So it ended up being a three-year project, uh, collecting a whole bunch of books and videos, and kind of meeting with a whole bunch of directors who were still alive, and some of the newer people. It ended up being a very fun, informative project, and kind of got a, an idea as to what non-nudists thought of nudism. And that was really the thing I was most interested in, how were people presenting nudism in film even though they themselves may not, may, might not have been nudists. It's actually a really fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, it really gives us an insight into society throughout the different time periods. Um, in the book, you, you have a large uh, number of movies that are classified according to a variety of categories. How did you decide what to include and not to include, and how did you classify them all? Well, I was really interested in the films that portrayed or addressed nudism as I understood it. Social uh, nudity you know, between men, women, families, friends, in a non-sexualized setting. There's been stag films with nudity forever. I think probably five minutes after the camera was invented, somebody figured out to take a picture of his girlfriend naked. Uh, that stuff's been going on, and certainly porn's been around. I wasn't interested in that, and I really don't know a whole lot about you know, those kinds of films. Uh, I was interested in what nudists and non-nudists did with, uh, with this concept of nudism. It was so big in the 30s. Nudism just blossomed in North America in the early 30s, and that's when film was really taken off. Uh, it was inter it's an interesting little marriage. Um, as far as the classifications go, the ones I was interested in primarily are, are called by film historians exploitation films. And uh, these films were usually almost always made by non nudists. In fact, I can't think of any that were. The, some of the filmmakers would actually get nude in the process, but they really weren't considered nudists. An exploitation film was a film that was made outside the Hollywood mainstream. Hollywood in the late 20s, early 30s, uh, was under pressure from states and counties to self-censor their films. Um, there were censorship boards popping up, and Hollywood did not want to have a state-based censorship program because they would have to make a different film for every state in the country, depending on how the state would censor the films. So in the early, mid-30s, they decided to kind of clean up their act, and really avoid certain kinds of topics. That allowed people <clears throat> outside of the Hollywood mainstream, these low-budget independent filmmakers, to create some films that weren't illegal, but were on the dicey edge of things. And some of these filmmakers made nudist films. There was never any sex in them, of course. Uh, they weren't obscene. Um, but they did have nudity in the sense of you know, female breasts and buttocks. Never genitals. That would always be legally obscene up to, uh, up to the 60s. So we had this exploitation films. It would be this forbidden topic nudity, uh, nudism, for instance. It might be uh, VD or health films. It might be atrocities from uh, some continent outside of North America in a jungle. It might be uh, hillbillies. Uh, there's all kinds of strange things, um, uh, strange topics that Hollywood just wouldn't want to deal with. Uh, nudism was one of them. These films are always made cheaply. Uh, they were low-budget productions by independent filmmakers. Uh, absolutely no credibility in terms of production value whatsoever. They were slapdash, thrown together quickly, just to get the spectacle on the screen that they could show. They were distributed independently outside the Hollywood production theater monopoly. 
shown at the Elks clubs, um, taverns. Um, the people who were marketing these things were old circus carnies, so they knew how to go into a small town and um, promote these things in some big tent or some you know, Roxy theater on the outside of town. Uh, so the outside the main theater production. And they were shown in public places, not controlled by major studios. Very few copies were made. Uh, somebody would throw it in the back of his car, take it to some town, show it for a couple of weeks, throw it back in his car, drive it to the next little town, show it. So by the time it made the circuit, say in the Midwest, it would be a pretty beat-up film. It just cost too much to make extra copies. That purpose was simply to make money. And some of these guys made millions of dollars on these exploitation films. So films I'm interested in, of course, are the nudist exploitation films. And I do like to you know, set them apart from others. One, they've got to be exploitation films, that's obvious. There has to be a nudist setting in my mind. Um, it's not just the nudity that makes the nudist films. It could be a nudist camp or a nudist colony, as they might refer to it in, um, in the movies. Some of them would be um, set on nudist beaches. But most of them had nudist camps. I think that's because the uh, filmmakers go to a nudist camp on off-season usually to check to see the sky. It's almost always cloudy, even though the place might be in Florida or Southern California, maybe some winter setting. Uh, pay the camp owner maybe 500 bucks for use of the camp for a week. And they just have uh, uh, have the thing set there. So you have a nudist setting. Um, there'd be some kind of proclamation of nudist philosophy. Somewhere in the film, the actors would be saying, you uh, know, Talking, touting all the glories of nudism, how it was healthy, socially healthy, physically healthy. And one of the main reasons for this, if you listen to the directors in their interviews since, was if censors did get a hold of the film, or there was public outcry because of the nudity, they could point to these pieces of philosophy or pieces of uh, basically nudist propaganda and say, see, this is actually educational film. We're actually helping to educate the public about nudism so the public can be informed and know whether they want to uh, go or send their, their families to nudist camps. This is a way to kind of get aside from some of the legal hassles they might have had. They're never overtly sexual. I, I, I find maybe two films where you might see just gentle kissing, uh, holding hands is about as radically sexual as these films get. And that irritated a lot of the customers. They heard there was going to be a bunch of nudity, thought there'd be some really great, fun stuff, and it just turns out to be, you know, Fairly good-looking women, a couple of good-looking guys throwing volleyballs or beach balls next to each other. Not much was really going on. There's always, though, the promise that the next film might have something really, really racy, but it never happened. These films have never had anything like that, if they were nudist exploitation films. The purpose of these things was always simply to display female nudity, though. That was what was bringing the customers in, and people would just circle the blocks to go to these things. Uh, some of them, as I say, made the directors millionaires. Uh, very little money was put into it. If there was a huge desire to, to see naked people, you just couldn't do that unless you had access to stag films or the porn films that would be shown in private in somebody's basement. But these are just whole other kinds of things. There's different kinds of styles of nudist films also. I find three different kinds. There's documentaries. Um, even the documentaries could be split in a couple of ways. You could have uh, a documentary where someone is supposedly trying to provide kind of a newsreel footage of nudist life. And some of them were clearly spoofs of documentaries where it was just kind of joking around about nudism. But the idea was to show people and explain to people what goes on in a nudist camp. Uh, we also have fictional stories. These were more popular in the 60s uh, after the documentaries got kind of boring to a lot of people. But you just have everything from detectives searching for somebody in a nudist camp to a bank robbers mistakenly being taken to a nudist camp and hiding out, uh, spaceships landing in nudist camps, all those kinds of crazy stories that would uh, make uh, customers say, well, this actually would be kind of interesting. 
back in the 50s, there was a third kind of um, nudist film. In the 30s and 40s, it got, well, in the 30s, it was pretty interesting. The, the films were mainly documentaries for the most part. Nudism was new enough that people were actually interested in just finding out about nudism. By the time you get to the 40s, World War II is happening. You don't have very many nudist films showing up then. The 40s were just dead to everything except World War II. By the time you get to the 50s, people were still kind of bored with the nudism. What they wanted was something more interesting. So compilation films, a third kind of nudist film, came about where people, directors, would take these old films and simply slice out all the parts with the juicy nudity. And so you'd have maybe four or five or six different parts of different films all just sliced together in a big montage, and it'd just be scene after scene of women running around in beaches, twirling umbrellas, tossing beach balls and whatnot. No story, no information, but it's just simply solid nudity from beginning to end. Um, so you'll either have these documentaries, fictional stories, these compilations. And as I said, that seems to be pretty much the history of nudist exploitation films, those kinds of distinctions. Once you hit um, the late 60s, where the Supreme Court ruled that uh, full nudity was not in and of itself indecent, at that point, all the filmmakers who simply wanted to make money showing female flesh could show full nudity, genitalia of men and women, and sex. And so it, just, the porn industry took over. So in the, about 1968 through the 70s, you have this huge... Uh, move towards porn, and the nudist exploitation films just fell off the map. You just don't find any afterwards. The people who are wanting to make money with flesh now went into the porn industry, and the nudist films just are almost gone throughout the 70s. You don't see them again until the 80s when the nudists themselves come back with lower-priced um, home camcorders, video cassette um, recorders, and making new videos. Um, the video industry or the video, video equipment was so much cheaper than the camera equipment in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s that you could have almost anybody get a hold of a, a video recorder and uh, try to come up with documentaries or little stories uh, touting the glories of nudism or naturism. See that movement in the 80s. You do cover in your book those later films, those uh, post-exploitive uh, films, uh, the ones mostly done in videos, as you say. Um, how would you describe those? Do you think they did the job, or did they have a value? Um, they were often produced by naturists. Was that the right thing for naturists to do at the time? Well, Eden Velez, who was a, still is a respected filmmaker, he won the Maya Darren Award. He has uh, his video work in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So he's a respected filmmaker, art filmmaker outside of naturism. He really did the first naturist videos. Back in, I think it was 1980, was his first one. Lee Baxendall, founder of the Nature Society, worked with him to get that going. And he crafted some really quality travel videos. He would just take people uh, to four, five, six different places around the world, beaches, clubs, resorts. And the idea was to give the viewer a sense of what real nature's life was like. And there would be a variety of people, men, women, children, old and young, large and small. And uh, because he was such a good filmmaker, he was far better than the exploitation filmmakers, he actually crafted some pretty good videos. And he was financially successful for a while because no one else was doing it. Once others found out that you could make money doing this, of course, others got in the game, found ways of making them cheaper, perhaps by just going to one club or one resort for a week and filming only there. You just didn't have the travel expenses. Uh, other people then started coming up with less expensive product. And some of them were doing a pretty good job. And Velez just kind of, you know, stopped doing nature's videos after doing about 10 or 11 in the early and mid-80s. But how are they different? Uh, some of them, some of the quality's better. Some not. There are some video makers now that are just horrible. 
Um, they're just churning out stuff with naked women still. But usually the naturist videos we see now tend to be more informative, more didactic, more argumentative. In a sense, they really are trying to make a case that naturism is simply a wonderful thing. Uh, you could hear that in the naturist philosophy offered in the exploitation films, but in the exploitation films it was just enough to give the appearance that it was an educational video. With the naturist films of the 80s and beyond, they truly are educational videos. I mean, the purpose really is to convince people to give naturism a try or to um, explain how wonderful a particular site is. One of the more popular kinds of videos in the 80s and 90s is for a videographer to go to a particular resort, perhaps in the Caribbean, perhaps in France or in North America, and spend some time filming the facilities, interviewing people about the particular resort or the location, and it was almost works as a marketing tool for that resort. Many of these directors would get a free stay in the place, and uh, the owner of the resort would know that a video would be put out by a reputable videographer, and maybe more people would show up and want to stay at that resort. So it, it ended up being in part a marketing tool for a resort, many of these videos, but they were also very ideological. People, they, the people filming these things really did at this point enjoy naturism, really did think it was a good thing for folks, and we're just trying to figure out a financially uh, responsible way of, of making it work for everybody. I don't think the more recent films are always as uh, naturist as they could be. I think some of them are actually quite exploitive. You know, if we look at some of the films that are available today, uh, and I know that the Nature Society doesn't actually carry ads for some of these videos, but there are a ton of videos for sale out there that feature mostly women, uh, or in some cases mostly children, and that's even more disturbing, actually, because they might be exploiting children. Why do you think that kind of exploitation is still happening out there? And, I mean, why is that still selling, given the uh, almost uh, ubiquitous availability of pornography? Well, in a sense, they are, there are certainly some video companies and video operators who I think are quite exploitive in exactly the way you describe it. Some of them will use the word naturist to make their children films uh, seem somehow family-friendly. And if you look at some of these, you will not find a single scene that you could say is you know, sexually oriented. But you know, one company has at least 300 videos of nothing but kids doing whatever kids like to do. I, I really can't understand what anybody would need to buy or produce 300 videos of, of naked kids. It, it, it seems obvious who the, who the uh, product would be made for. So there are some videographers out there who will occasionally call themselves naturist. Some always will. And it's just always good-looking women. Um, you talk to some, for, for instance, Charlie Simmons, nice guy. He's from England. Um, I, I respect him. He's a good videographer, an outstanding still photographer. He tends to like attractive women, and he says this is what will sell video so that he can get his good message out. And I think he, I, I am convinced he really does want to express what naturism is. And I think he is accurately showing a slice of naturism when he has you know, two or three attractive women, maybe one fellow going with him to a resort. Uh, but it is only a slice of naturism, because most, of, most naturists don't look perfect, and we're just a pretty broad array of people. There's other folks who will refer to some of their videos as naturist, and all it is is just naked people, usually naked women, walking around in public or doing, you know, doing this or that on a beach. And the only thing that's naturist about it is, is there's human beings enjoying themselves naked in nature, pretty clearly, just you know, catering to a market who wants to look at uh, naturist or films of naked women. How these guys stay in business, I'm not really quite sure, because if all I wanted to do was look at naked women, there's videos 
online and for sale in the store, they're far racier and far more salacious than you'd see here. So I don't know how they make a business, how they stay in business, except that it's just so darn cheap to produce these things now. I mean, anybody can go to a department store, buy a little handheld camera. If they've got a friend or 500 bucks to rent a model for the day, they can go out and produce footage in 24 hours and with a home computer produce this thing. And then they could have a master disc, provide the master disc to a distributor, and as the orders come in, the distributor comes up with, you know, just makes a little DVD. So you don't even have to store the things. So the technology's gotten so cheap, and uh, the ability to wield the camera is becoming nearly ubiquitous. Almost anybody can enter into this business. And it's flooded. It's absolutely gutted, flooded with, uh, with poor and in quality camera work. Uh, I think the way they can stay in business, because it doesn't cost much, to do these things. 1980s and before, it took far more money. The exploitation films would be, you know, they would have to spend 10 to maybe 50,000 bucks, which isn't that much in terms of Hollywood filmmaking. It's just a drop in the bucket. But they oftentimes could make, you know, quite a bit of money on that. Today, I, who know virtually nothing about cameras, could produce a so-called naturist video for under 100 bucks. In fact, I've done so. For $200, I actually produced one uh, video uh, documenting one of these particular videographers, and I was astounded at how little I had to know how to, how little information or technical technical ability I needed to have, and how little money it took to actually get something that people could now spend sixty bucks on online if they wanted to buy it. I can't imagine why anybody would want to buy that thing for sixty bucks, but if there's people out there buying that stuff, then um, I guess you, somebody could make some money on it. Going back to the uh, films of the early to mid twentieth century, where we were making all those exploitation films. There's several of them where you can see that naturists actually actively participated in the production of the films, uh, even though the producers and the directors were not naturists and clearly intent on creating an exploitive situation. Um, why do you think they did that? Why did the naturists participate? And do you think that was a good thing for naturism at the time? Well, certainly in, in Florida, for instance, this was more of it happened here than anyplace else. You would have exploitation filmmakers like Herschel um, Gordon Lewis, Doris Wishman, uh, to go to Florida in the winter, oftentimes because they wanted to get away from the cold climates they lived in, and for two, three, four weeks hang out in, um, in a nudist club area. There weren't many other clubs there. There weren't many members of the clubs. It was kind of wintry. They would bring some friends, hire some, some good-looking women locally. They might be strippers. They might be somebody's girlfriend, whoever. And for the growing price, seemed to be about 500 bucks, they could pretty much have access to the club grounds for a few days. The club owners oftentimes thought of this uh, as suspect, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Some of the club owners thought, well, as, as long as we can have some kind of control over this and make sure they don't do anything really weird, it might help get the word out, because here's basically free advertising for nudism in general, or maybe for our club. So you know, oftentimes in these films, see national organization logos placed here and there at the volleyball court or at the, the, the food stand or whatnot. And these are just basically product placements for the ASA or whatever group that was um, uh, in charge of the club at the point. And I think they thought that the films would you know, help advertise nudism without costing them any money. In fact, they might make a little money out of it. This went on for a few years, from about 1960 to eh, probably about 65, 6, 67. And it became pretty apparent that most of the people who were going to these films weren't joining up in the nudist camps. It was men and women. They're just going to see, you know, 
a strange thing. My God, here we are. We spend five bucks, maybe a couple bucks more than most movies, but we get to see a nudist camp. Uh, a lot of the club owners got together and said, this just isn't working. Um, you look in the nudist magazines, there's articles written about this constantly back in the, in the late 60s and mid-60s. And there was big discussion as to whether this was good for nudism or not. Those who thought it might be good thought, hey, it's good getting some advertising out, it's opening discussion, it's okay. Others thought, no, it's just making us look like we're just a bunch of, you know, bimbo women tossing beach balls around. It was, it was certainly more than that. And I think, as I said, by about the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, club owners just kind of wanted to wash their hands of it. At about that time, again, uh, porn gets moving forward, and filmmakers are no longer interested in going to nudist camps anyway. They can provide this salacious material in a more straightforward manner. Did it actually help nudism? Well, I have found some research by nudists or people friendly, and sociologists friendly to nudism, who wanted to find out what brought people to camps. And at that time, films actually did do a fair amount to bring people into camps for the first time. Uh, apparently there were quite a few people, oftentimes men, who would see the films. So that look really looks fun. I'd like to try that. And they bring their wife, their girlfriend to camp. At that point, they're not likely to get to the camp by themselves. Most nudist camps required couples uh, to visit. And uh, a number of people showed up because of that. Not as many as who saw the magazines. We could have the same discussion about nudist magazines at the time. I think most people who were checking out, checking out nudist camps um, were introduced to it through a friend, a family member, or through a nudist magazine. But nudist films did seem to have some kind of impact on um, people trying it out. Not as big as magazines, though. So did it help nudism? Eh, I don't think so. It certainly doesn't give a full picture of nudism. None of these films did. Some of them gave a, an accurate slice of nudism, an accurate picture of a slice of nudism, um, a very romantic slice in a non-sexual way. Everybody's happy. Um, everything it turns out good. And nudism is just the best thing for everybody. Um, and that's, that's true for a lot of us, but it's, you know, nudism is like any other aspect of life. There's the ups and the, and the downs. And the films tend to just paint kind of a glossy picture of the whole thing. So of all the movies you've reviewed, what were your favorites? Which one would you recommend that people take a look at and why? Well, there's, they're coming out with some new DVDs of some of these. Uh, my very favorites, to my knowledge, are not out on a DVD that's quality yet. Um, two of the best ones, I think, are from the 1930s. And there is a, um, uh, a VHS version out on What you're looking for is Unashamed, Together with Elysia. These are two 1930s fictional stories. The production quality is relatively high. The storyline is actually kind of interesting. They're entertaining in a kind of schlocky, almost campy sort of way. But uh, The Unashamed and Elysia are two fictional stories from the 30s, which actually do portray nudism from the 30s accurately. I've talked to people who were on the set at the time, at the camps they were filmed. They're now quite old. One, just, one guy died recently. And they said, yeah, so I remember you know, seeing them film it, and that's the way our camp actually was. These, these two films were done when nudism was interesting just because it was nudism. Once you get into the late 30s, 40s, 50s, people are bored with nudism and they want something more fun. So you get into the 60s, that's the next best time really for nudist films. And here's where you have the fictional films. They're now in color, they're campy, they're screwy, they're funny, they're goofy. You just want to laugh throughout the whole time. And there are some good DVD versions. Hide Out in the Sun is probably one of Doris Wishman's best nudist films. It's her first one. And it's a fabulous DVD version now, Hide Out in the Sun. Uh, Nude on the Moon is probably one of the top favorites of people who like nudist exploitation films. Here we have a rocket ship going to the moon. We find almost nude women there. It's kind of crazy. 
There's a, my personal favorite is a double horror film. There's two horror nudist films, both in the 60s. Uh, one of the films was The Beast That Killed Women, and the other is The Monster of Camp Sunshine. Now, these are all kind of GPG films, I and mean, there's no sex in them whatsoever. You could show them to your nudist grandmother without any problem. But The Beast That Killed Women and The Monster of Camp Sunshine just is like rolling around, laugh-out-loud kind of stuff. Really low quality. Um, but you want to approach these films with that kind of angle. You're not, you're not looking at these things because they're great films. You're looking at them because they're just some of the worst things that were ever made, but bad in a good sort of way. Well, that's it for this episode of The Naturist Living Show. If you have any comments, feel free to send us an email. You can send an email to naturistliving at bareoaks.ca. That's B-A-R-E, oaks.ca. Or you can also call and leave a voicemail at area code 253-369-9383. And if you leave a voicemail with a question or a comment, we might just play it in one of the future shows. So feel free to give us a call anytime. Thank you.